Thank you for being with us today. My name is Jonathan Bluestein. I am a best-selling author and the head of Blue Jade Martial Arts International, as well as an amateur scholar of traditional Chinese medicine. And today I am proud to present my mentor, friend, and a person I very much cherish, Professor Stephen Jakovitz of Long Island, New York. So uh, Stephen, please introduce yourself to us. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I'm uh, Dr. Steve Jakowitz. I currently serve as the chair of the doctoral program in traditional Chinese medicine at the University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And although I am a Long Island native, I make that commute to Connecticut regularly. I'm excited for us to talk about uh, traditional Chinese medicine and share some of our views and ideas out there. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be involved with East Asian medicine for, you know, the large part of my life, starting my study of it back uh, in the uh, early 1990s. All right. That's a long time. You've been practicing a long time. Well, you know, time flies and you never think it's that long till you look back on it. So that's always a measure and there's always more to look forward to. So hopefully uh, a little bit of practice of all those uh, Qigong exercises and such, I'll be able to be involved in this for a fair number of years more. We sure hope so. And Prior to being an academic, you were also in private practice for many years, right? That's true. I actually, um, my undergraduate degree started me off in studying East Asian studies at uh, Harvard, and I wound up uh, going to South Korea and going to medical school there, and then eventually coming back, uh, doing more training in the U.S. at the New England School of Acupuncture for a while, where I taught subsequently, and then went on to get a Ph.D. Uh, studying the historical evolution of East Asian medicine. Uh, and then wound up uh, teaching both history as well as uh, Asian medicine. Uh, and then eventually uh, I wound up uh, now pursuing a second PhD, uh, which is focused on a very uh, specific uh, approach and research to the Huangdi Neijing, the Yellow Emperor's classic of internal medicine, and looking at structural formats of how the text was created and how that can kind of help uh, understand it in a deeper way. So I've been doing this for a little while. I've been in private practice, back getting licensed back in the late 90s, and have worked in you know, a number of different schools and different supervisory roles, as well as academic roles, and have published a fair number of uh, academic things on Chinese medicine. All right. That's, uh, that's quite a long list of things. And today we are hoping to give some useful practical insight for TCM practitioners across the world and especially in North America. And let me start off by asking this. You know, as we all know, East Asian medicine has been growing steadily more popular in the West over the past few decades. And um, nonetheless, we find that practitioners face certain challenges in their clinics, which are not necessarily related to the medicine itself. Uh, could you kindly ex extrapolate on these things? Well, that's a great question. I think one of the things is that we are using the term East Asian medicine to be as inclusive as possible, but really using that to refer to the traditional medical system that uh, developed both in, in China, in Japan, in Korea, in Vietnam. There's, there's variations in that. And so we're using the term East Asian medicine as uh, those, those methods and theories differ somewhat. When we see it transplanted to the West, it's very interesting because we're taking something outside of the context in which it grew. We're taking something that then the practitioners who study in the West, many of them did not necessarily grow up 
using it, and nor did the patients. And so there's a bit of a difference with the way people come to it in the West and a bit of a difference in how the field has formulated in regards also to Western medicine and where the two systems, the Western and the Eastern, really are a little bit different and have integrated to some extent, but not in the same way that you see in East Asia itself. And so there's often a challenge when the student goes and gets into practice, when they go into practice and they're coming into this world of private practice or even working in larger clinics and how they can move forward and develop a practice uh, in a world where it's kind of like an, a virgin territory, where it's still developing in the way it's viewed, in the way that the mainstream Western medical community views it, in our relationship to insurance, our relationship to billing, all of these things are still evolving during this time period. And so I remember when there wasn't really any insurance to bill, when it really wasn't that way, that people came in and said, oh, do you have coverage? That wasn't necessarily where we started out with, where everything was out of pocket. And when it was hard to find herb suppliers and when herbs were all the raw herbs and the granular formats and all the pill forms and weren't as available, right? So things have definitely changed. Even just the number of suppliers of needles and, and of, of cups and of all the different things that we use has changed. And even our clean needle technique manual and the way that we do things for our best practices has evolved over time. So it's an evolving part of the field. And so this has often led to challenges for the people who get out of school and how do they move forward? How do they build a practice and how do they reach out to the patient who can come in and can benefit from this? And that's really something that I've seen in the years I've been doing this and teaching people has been a real challenge because I see people who come out of school so talented in their ability to treat and then often floundering in their ability to make the transition to create a practice that supports them. And that's one of the things that maybe we could talk about today is that transition, how to get that practice to support them. Because practices, interestingly, aren't exactly businesses. So I think that's part of what perhaps you know, can be the, the, the nexus of what we discussed today. All right. And there was a story you told me before we started the recording about a student of yours that I think could exemplify this quite well. So I, over the years, I've worked with a lot of students, worked with, worked with students as they've gotten into practice. So one of the things that one of the students had, had uh, contacted me this number of years ago and had gotten out of school and was, in, was going through what we call boom bust. Boom, all of a sudden people come in and it seems like it's busy and it's a groundswell and it's going, going, going. And then bust, the numbers fall off. And all of a sudden it seems like everybody deserted the practice. And, and, and he was really confused. And he's like, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm working as hard as I can. I'm trying to keep their, their interest at heart. What's going wrong? So we talked about this, we looked at it. And one of the big things is that the question of not treatment, the question of treatment plan, the question of how do you string together the treatments into a larger plan? How do you communicate that plan to the people? How do you get them to understand that this works over time? So with the student in question, we had to look at and say, well, what were you doing? How are you talking to them on their intakes? How are you talking to them on the day, first day they come in? How are you explaining to them that this is progress over time? And progress over time requires you to keep going. Are you making the analogy to them that this is like, like going to the gym where exercise pays off over time? That this is like physical therapy that pays off over time? And are you setting benchmarks 
when you're gonna reevaluate. So for the student in question who was doing a lot of musculoskeletal work, right? To say with the people, all right, we're gonna quantify some of the measures, measure what's going on, give a number, use a goniometer, which measures the angle of a joint. Say, what range of motion do you have? How much can we see that change? Measuring that over time, but also sticking to a plan saying, all right, we're gonna work 10 times, then reevaluate and do a little reevaluation. And in the reevaluation, letting the patient review with you the things that they came in with, saying, wait a minute, your range of motion was here. Your, your number of hours you slept were like this. You rated your sleep quality this way, right? Showing them all the things that have changed so that the patient can realize the change is incremental. The patient can agree, say, wait a minute, this did work. These 10 sessions taught me or brought me somewhere. And therefore they can choose to come and say, oh, wait a minute, I want to do 10 more. I want to work on that plan again, because it's incremental change. And that really changed my students, you know, his practice, because it was saying, okay, you need to not only on the first day, discuss this plan, schedule the plan, put the person on the schedule, 10 weeks, same time if they can, for 10 weeks out, if it's a 10 week plan, right? Schedule them and schedule the reevaluation actually reevaluate on the day of reevaluation. Actually keep them so you know where they're going. Just like I had said to him, if you're driving from New York to Cincinnati, there's checkpoints on the road to make sure you're going the right way, that you know where you're going and you're not making a wrong turn. Because if you make a wrong turn, you wind up somewhere else. And that's the same thing that you have in treatment, working in that sequential format. And that's one of the things that oftentimes the, we kind of fall a little short on in the West. And I think we fall short on that for a couple of reasons. Right? One of the reasons is that the patients don't realize what this medicine is like. They don't realize that it works in that format. And so that's something we need to help the patients understand. We need to get them in that mindset. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Another thing is that oftentimes in student clinics, student clinics are great, but student clinics are a little artificial. They work on a semester base. Maybe the patient says, oh, I'm coming every day for the semester. The intern doesn't really feel the same relationship to the patient as they do when the patient's helping to pay their rent, 
When, when really the person coming forward, there's a financial component that you want the patient to come. You certainly want them to get better. It's medicine, but you also can't keep your doors open if you don't have a patient volume. So the relationship is different when you go into private practice. It changes things a little bit. And when you're in a student clinic, you're kind of stuck a lot of times on, well, this person's going to come on the Monday shift at two o'clock. Maybe they should come twice a week. Maybe they should come once every two weeks. Maybe they should come three times a week. Different concerns require different timing, but you can't always pull that off in the student clinic. You really are kind of conjoined into the structure of the student clinic. And the intern certainly got, have to, has to learn from the supervisor. The supervisor has a certain point of view and a lot of experience and, and that's wonderful and you'll learn a lot from those supervisors. But at the same time, maybe the supervisor is putting this patient into a certain you know, level of understanding or a certain bracket that the intern doesn't have yet. If the intern's not up to understanding what goes on or the intern would have approached it on a more basic level, which maybe would have worked, but it would take taken more time. So a lot of times you work with the supervisor and you say, okay, that's the captain. I'm going to follow the captain. I'm the player. And that's fine. Once you're in private practice, you go into room with the patient and close the door. Well, I guess you're the captain and you got to be the playmaker on the field trying to figure out what to do. So that part is often a, a challenge in transition. All right. So I think if we segment everything you said into uh, three main issues, So I'm starting from the end. First being a type of relationship that one needs to learn to develop with patients in private practice, which is different to the type of relationships that he or she had when they were in the student clinic. So that's one important thing. Another thing is numbers, scales, and benchmarks, which we may have for ourselves. They're not necessarily shown to the patients. So it's fine and dandy that someone has this in their papers, on their computer, in their mind, but unless the patient sees those numbers, scales, and benchmarks as they affected him or her, then it's not as effective because they have to, to understand it on the same uh, physical level, not the theoretical, technical level, but the same physical level that the practitioner does to see the, that progress. And thirdly, I'd like to uh, quote Will Durant here. Will Durant, the author of um, The Story of Civilization, um, uh, an 11-book volume collection on the uh, entire history of mankind from prehistoric times to Napoleon. And he was summarizing some of Aristotle's teachings uh, by writing thus, that we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. And I think this relates to the first thing you were saying, that the patients come in and they believe that the uh, medical procedure with accordance to TCM principles is going to be something akin to a surgery. You come in once or twice, you get something moved or removed somehow, and then it gets fixed. It's like fixing a car. But rather, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. It has to be continuous. And this sort of mindset has to be ingrained into the patient, right? Yeah, I do agree. I agree. I think, I think one of the biggest challenges that you see in the West is that Westerners, our culture in the modern day has become one of instant gratification. And so we really are focused on have it now, buy now, pay later. That's a real common rubric that goes on in society. 
And so what happens is when patients come in, they don't always understand or they're not necessarily you know, made aware right away that this is a process. So it's a process. And, and East Asian medicine is natural, it's a natural medicine. Pharmaceuticals are rarefied, they're reductionist medicine, um, but East Asian medicines are natural. Natural medicines work more slowly. They hopefully have fewer side effects if used correctly, but they move more slowly. And so you need change over time. And the person has to understand that, that it's an incremental change. And the patient has a hard time, many of them, certainly not all of them, but many of them have a hard time recognizing incremental change. Even if we use number scales, if we use number scales such as, oh, my pain's nine out of 10, my pain's eight out of 10. Well, if it goes from eight or nine out of 10 to five or six out of 10, that's a lot better. But that's sometimes hard because it didn't just stop. And the movement coming down, which may take weeks, is challenging many times for the Western patient, as opposed to an opioid. You take an opioid and the pain's gone. It comes back when you stop it, but it's gone. So that's a big challenge to say, wait a minute, you've got you've to get them to understand how incremental change occurs. So that's one big thing right there. I'd also say that it's based on the principles that the practitioners utilize and are clear because if we want to go back to the Huangdi Neijing, right, the section 54, chapter 54, which is the, the exposition on needles, it says clearly in there, your success or failure, the difficulty comes through your principles. It's right there in that chapter saying if your principles are strong and you're, you understand it clearly, that's how you define that. So the practitioner and patient need to be very clear on that. Sun Sun Miao in the Chen Jin Yao Fang. The collection of a thousand with a thousand gold pieces, it's 625. So the first step in treatment is control of the patient's mind, meaning meeting their expectations, making them understand, making them understand how that this is a process. And traditionally we say for every year you've had the problem, it's a month of treatment. So a five-year problem is five months to see it get to a level where it can hold steady in the remediation. That type of communication is so necessary to take the patient and understand that, especially the Western patient who did not grow up with this, who did not have this going on all the time. So that's really an important part of building a practice and building things so that you can maintain that and have the practice be the platform for good work. Because as we said before, practices aren't exactly businesses. They're a little different. So this is seriously fascinating stuff. Uh, let me ask you, in your opinion and experience, how can a former student and current practitioner bridge the gap between the formal schooling and the requirements of private practice? According to the examples you just gave now, perhaps uh, some of that bridging the gap could be found in the classics, actually? Well, that's a challenging question because the thing is the classics is a very amorphous term. Right? We're talking about East Asian medicine. We're talking about a medical system that spans thousands of years. We're talking about books, many, 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 many books. And less than 5% of all the classical literature that exists has been translated from classical Chinese to modern Chinese. And of that has been translated to modern Chinese. And an even smaller percentage has been translated into Western languages. The majority of things that exist have not been translated. So there's no way anyone can be familiar with all of the classical literature. It's just impossible. Also, what we really need to work with many times is standardized modern approaches. That's why the, the foundation of modern TCM, starting in 1953 with the actions of the Communist Party to standardize it and professionalize it, has really brought a high standard 
to what's done. And the standardized textbooks and the standardized material medicas, the standardized approaches are really helpful, especially because they are integrated in some, some sense with Western medical ideas. Western medical categorizations are addressed in that format. And so certain things like, like high blood pressure, high blood pressure was not addressed historically, classically. It's a modern understanding with the ability to measure high blood pressure. There are patterns historically that existed that we've been able to summate and say, oh, those were, were blood pressure unchecked, right? But, but even like that or hepatitis, hepatitis, viral hepatitis was not understood because they didn't, weren't able to check for the virus, but rather but they, we've been able to understand certain patterns that showed up separately that were caused by viral hepatitis. So the modern standardization has really allowed us to, to operate in the modern clinical setting. And that's really where people need to start. That's really a good place to start before one makes a, a foray into the classical world. Most importantly is I think for the transition into private practice, and the, and the effectiveness of private practice is understanding metrics of success and metrics of failure. That when you go in with the first day with the patient, you have to be able to predict what will be a sign that I'm going in the right direction? What would be a sign I'm going in the wrong direction? And you can have a, lot, a large range of how you do that. You can follow something like the Kazato method of the Japanese, which focuses very much on pulse and say, oh, certain positive pulse changes could mean I'm going in the right direction. How do I chart those and go forward, right? Or you could you know, work with certain constitutional ideas like you see in the Korean medicine, where you're like, okay, this constitution has this tendency. How do I predict the tendency of whether it's healing or whether it's degrading? If you look at the modern TCM ideas where we use a lot of numerical quantified measures, where you might use a goniometer to range, check the range of motion, where you might use pain scales, where you might use standardized, standardized uh, approaches to create a quantified metric and say, this is the metric of me moving forward. This is the metric of me moving backwards and then be, be able to pilot that forward. And as you mentioned earlier, Jonathan, communication with the patient, where it, you might have that in your notes, but the patient doesn't understand, this is where we're going. And this is why I need you, patient Mr. Johnson. This is why I need you to do these exercises. This is why I need you to do this and change your diet this way, or to take these herbs on this schedule. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I always tell the students, I go, herbs are the greatest medicine that don't work when you don't take them. 
And if you don't swallow them, you don't follow the, the plan, they don't work, right? And so that's the thing. You need to acculturate the patient, give them this cultural foundation of understanding a natural medical system because our Western world is very divorced from nature. And how do we use natural abilities? I mean, we can tout the abilities of the body to heal itself, sure. But at the same time, your body can't heal itself unless you're engaged in it because you are the emperor or empress of your body. So say the classic, right? So you have the control to close the borders, right? And not take in the medicine that can help you or open the borders and engage with the doctor in the world. So it's part of that planning that really helps make the person survive and practice. And that's why you need to help the patient understand. We can call it control the patient. And maybe people go, oh, control, they don't like that word. All right, well, the Chinese word, zhe, for control or govern or treat. All that, if you look at the character itself, it has the water radical, it has the dam radical and the mouth radical. And it is the word to govern like govern a country, for it means dam the water to feed the people. And so that is the word used to treat someone, which is to control the waterways or the fluids in their body and nourish them. And therefore control is not a bad thing. But if you don't control the patient enough to understand how to move forward, then they are always caught in their pathology. And as one of my teachers said to me, he said, he said, if you could cure cancer and you don't tell anybody and you don't guide them to the 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 treatments that they need, then you're going to hell. Having the ability to help them and not setting up the platform to do it. And that's why I said before, practices aren't businesses. Because a business is just based on money. But a practice is a platform, a platform for the good work that you're going to do. You got to pay the rent, you got to pay the electricity, you got to buy the supplies, you got to get the cleaning supplies and do all the good things that you do. But you have to understand that the practice is supported by those financial dynamics, not driven by them. And that's very important. And if the plan is there and the person will come in, they'll get success. The practitioner will be able to have the finances come in to support it. They'll be able to have enough finances to support them. So when the hard luck case comes in, they can give the person a discount where they can help the person out who can't afford it. That can't happen if you're starving. So that's why it's important to get those things going and help the patients understand and be acculturated to that model so they know what to expect and know how it works. And then they can get the most out of it. All right. So you said something very interesting that I would like to ask you about, uh, about the practice not being a business. But first of all, before we get to that, I would like to quote the famous uh, Chinese medicine sage, Tony Robbins. <laughs> well, not really, but he's a controversial figure, but he's, uh, you could definitely not say that he's not a smart guy. He is. And like him or not, sometimes he has sagely advice. And one of the important things that I learned from this man was that he said, when you would like to motivate people to do something, goals are good but they are not superior because if you set goals for yourself or people set goals for themselves or you help them set goals, that's little increments that they could follow. But what really defines what a person is going to do in the long term is how they view themselves, their self-image. So if a person decides, just for instance, that they're going to be sick forever and they have this image in their minds, it doesn't matter how many goals you set for them. So in discussing this very important topic of how to control the patient, it's one thing to tell them, take your meds on time, but there are underlying currents of how they view themselves and their condition and whether they can even get out of their condition, because maybe they've been told by 20 practitioners prior, 
or maybe they've even just been told by someone in kindergarten that they'll always have this, they'll always be that type of person. And that's their self-image. And that self-image casts a very big shadow over everything the practitioner does. So if you could just, before we get to uh, how come the, the practice is not exactly a business, prior to that, could you talk a little bit about controlling the patient in the sense of helping them change their self-image? I think that's a, that's a great question. It's a great observation. Like this is really interesting, right? Because in Chinese, there's multiple terms, especially in classical Chinese. And classical Chinese is what the classics are written in. And the classics are very, you know, they, they capture the imagination of the Western student. Classical Chinese is a dead language. It's a language like Latin. Right? Latin is the, is the ancient form of Italian. And a modern Italian speaker doesn't intrinsically speak Latin. They might have a leg up in learning it, but it's a little different. Classical Chinese is different than modern Chinese. It's the old form and those words changed over time. And so we're talking about thousands of years and also that, that was the way that things were written in those other countries in China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam. They also used classical Chinese to write things down much like Latin was used throughout Europe. And I mentioned that simply because when we're talking about these old books, you know, we, we, we have a lot of terminology and, and the words are very specifically defined. So in Chinese, we have the word bing, bing for disease. And bing disease is a core idea that you can have a disease and a disease has certain patterns and certain things that link together in it. So the, the disease itself may have sub patterns, the zone, the patterns that are there. But there's also the word ji, which is the word suffering. And this is why I bring this up, is because you may have a disease but your experience of the suffering of the disease is, can be very different from another person with the same disease. So two people who both have what we call B syndrome, which is most times a type of arthritis, right? They have arthritic degradations. They may have the same range of motion. They may have the same presentation of this, but their suffering may be very different. And that's the mind. That's the mind. The mind, how does it view things? How does it look at things? And I'm reminded of a story from Zhuangzi, right? The great Taoist sage Zhuangzi, who writes a story within the Zhuangzi. He write, writes a story about a man whose body is being deformed and changed, who has some sort of terrible deformative condition where he's hunched over and his head is, his neck is crooked and he's, he's, he's looking up, he can bear, he's, he's turning, one eye sees the sky, one eye sees down, his, his body's horribly misshapen from this degeneration. And his friend visits him and says, oh my God, it's getting worse, it's so bad, it's so bad. And he says, no, he goes, look at how the Tao is changing me. He goes, before I could not see heaven at all times, but now I can see heaven above. He says that every time I change and every day I get up to say, I'm in a different world, but my body has changed my position in the world. And that story is really a story about suffering, a story about mind. It's a story about how your perspective changes your potential. That potential and perspective are really the issues in mind. So as you said, if you are convinced that you're sick forever, if you're convinced that you're not able to heal to the, way, the way you want to, then that's true. It's the way it is. And it has nothing to do with the power of belief in Chinese medicine or belief in East Asian medicine or belief in Western medicine because medicine doesn't work on belief. Medicine works on certain physical dynamics, calling even qi a physical dynamic. But rather, if you always believe that it's the end of the world, then I guess it is the end of the world, right? That it's a terrible thing, right? Because you might be, it's a sunny day. You're like, oh damn, it's so hot. You're like, it's a rainy day. You're like, I guess I can't go outside. No matter what, you can, you know, you can, William Blake said, man can make a heaven of hell or a hell out of heaven, 
right? That ultimately you have that ability. And that means to control the mind, to control the mind and let the person have the confidence to say that the treatment plan can take you somewhere. It's medicine. It's not magic. It does not work 100% of the time. And ultimately, life is a limited quantity. No one gets out of life alive. So ultimately, it comes to an end. And the doctor bears witness to that. And the doctor sees that. And the question is, the patient who comes in, how can they change to be in a different state? How can you have a transformation on their zhuangkai, the structure of their qi, and thereby change that so that their jing, their essential core of being a human, can move through the qi, the metabolism of being alive, to elevate to shen, the spirit of being aware and conscious. That's the medicine. That's the sanba. That's the three. That's the three treasures, the treasures that we talk about in Chinese medicine all the time. And that's the flowering of spirit that we're after. And that's how, if, if people have read Lonnie Jarrett's book, Nourishing Destiny, he's very famous in the TCM world for writing a book about what's the purpose of medicine. But the purpose of, of medicine is the nourishing of who you could be. And who you could be is not metered by the mud and the minerals that make up your flesh. It's that that is the encasement of your spirit. And so how do we work on that? That wax is a little bit philosophical, right? In some sense, but at the same time, that's what we mean by control the mind. We don't mean control the mind is manipulate them and get the extra money out of them. No, 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 not that at all. But rather control the mind to say, we're going that way. Guide them. The very character Tao that everyone's so fascinated with the, the Tao. The word Tao is made up of the Chinese character for the back of your head and the road. And the Tao is the guy, the Taoist. The Tao is the symbol of the person going down the road that you get to follow. And then he'll take you somewhere. You'll get something out of that practice. That's where the doctor can engage Idao, the Tao of medicine, to guide you to a better place. And that's what I mean by control. So it's very important because if they don't know that, they don't know that 10 steps, 20 steps, 100 steps takes them somewhere else. They go, why am I taking steps? Right? Each step may be a little uncomfortable until it gets you where you want to go. I hope that you have enjoyed this thoughtful conversation with Jonathan Bluestein and Stephen Jackowitz on perspectives in practice and looking at our medicine from traditional points of view and trying to understand how it all fits into our modern world. You'll be able to hear the rest of this conversation in the fall edition of the audio journal that will be coming out in September, just in a couple of months. And we would love to hear about what you might like to share with our community on the audio journal here at Geological. You can visit the website, send us a message with what you'd like to share. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.